This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. This is Knowledge at Wharton here on Sirius XM 111 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Thanks very much for spending part of your day with us. Many Americans rely on programs like Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security for important aspects of their lives. But do you really know the background of these types of programs, also referred to as entitlements? They're also sometimes referred to as the safety net. But they are coming under closer scrutiny now with some of the potential changes that President Trump may want to make towards things like Medicare and Medicaid. There's also the concern of Social Security running out of money in the next couple of decades. To discuss the history of entitlement programs as well as their future, we are joined on the phone by Julian Zelizer, who is a professor of history and public affairs at Princeton University. He's also authored the book The Fierce Urgency of Now, Lyndon Johnson, Congress and the Battle for great society and also joining us is Ed, edward berkowitz who's professor of history and of public policy and administration at george washington university julian ed great to have you with us today thank you very much for your time thanks for having us since healthcare is kind of the topic of the day let's start there julian uh, and as i mentioned you've written about uh president lyndon baines johnson and it was lbj that was responsible for a good bit of medicare and medicaid or at least his administration Absolutely. Uh, the programs are created in 1965, and uh, it's the major expansion of health care policy, uh, really, that we've had until recent decades. And both of them uh, addressed a, a pretty urgent need at the time, and that was the uh, health care provisions for elderly Americans. And it was a difficult fight to get both of those programs into place, particularly Medicare. It was attacked as socialized medicine. The doctors mobilized against this government intervention. Uh, but in the end, not only was it able to get through Congress, but it became extremely popular, not just with the population that received benefits, but also with health care providers. Not only popular, but very important as well. Absolutely. Uh, it, it really transformed health care provision. It eliminated the problem that existed when the program was created. Uh, didn't eliminate it, but it severely reduced it. Uh, and, and most health care institutions, in addition uh, to American families, depend on those two programs remaining in place. With, as you mentioned, with the challenges that, that came about back then, uh, how close were we to not having them going back to the 60s? Well, very close. Uh, 65 wasn't the first time the, the program had been debated. Uh, it had been proposed several times uh, since the late 1950s. John F. Kennedy was unsuccessful in getting the program through Congress. Uh, there was the opposition of the physicians. Uh, there was also the opposition of insurance groups and the conservative coalition of Southern Democrats and Republicans on Capitol Hill yep. had repeatedly killed the program, including in 1964 after John F. Kennedy's assassination. So until the election of 64, which creates these huge liberal Democratic yeah. majorities, most of whom were supportive of the program, uh, it didn't look like it was going to pass at all. Uh, if you were betting, you'd probably bet that it wouldn't happen. Edward, with your background on Social Security, give us the, the backstory on how that really got started, because uh, I think a lot of people think of it as you know something relatively new, but this does have quite a long history in terms of how it got started in the United States. 
it goes back to 1935 when uh, Franklin Roosevelt was president, and after his party, the Democrats, won big victory in the congressional elections of 1934. And so President Roosevelt proposed Social Security in January of 1935. There was lots of discussion of it, and it eventually got passed in August of 1935. And it established the, the major program, really, in, of, of our entire welfare state. And it provided a pension for elderly people that, uh, you know, millions and millions of people have today. Uh, and it has also been amended several times to become the program that it is today, so that today it pays family benefits as of 1939. In other words, um, when someone dies, there are benefits for that person's survivor. Uh, it pays disability benefits as of 1956. It pays medical benefits as of 1965, as we've discussed. And it's also indexed to the rate of inflation um, as of 1972. So it's, a, it's, a, it's probably the most complete and important welfare state program that we have. Well, and how, kind of, how was it challenged as it was starting to, to come into existence? It faced real challenges in, in the beginning of its operations. The Democrats had this large majority in Congress, so they're able to have a certain amount of freedom in 1935 to pass laws. It didn't last very long, but they had it in 1935. But the program had a, had a lot of political liabilities. Uh, it, for one thing, the way it was set up, the tax collections from uh, workers and their employers were supposed to start in 1937, but the first regular benefits were not paid until, um, not supposed to be paid until 1942. Congress later amended that, but that was the original uh, plan, so that was a problem. And also the uh, state welfare benefits for the elderly were um, more pervasive and also higher in, in, uh, in cash amount them with Social Security until 1951. So a lot of people say, why should we have this at all? Right. So those were major challenges that really weren't surmounted until legislation that was passed in 1950. But what about the concerns of the uh, of doing a program like this and the impact on uh, the, the potential increasing of debt uh, to the country even back in those days? Well, that was a problem, but the thing about Social Security is that it's self-financed um, so that uh, it is paid not through tax collections uh, for, in the normal income tax sort of way, but rather payroll taxes. And so it had sort of a built-in source of funds, and that has managed to sustain the program from, from its beginnings to the present day. From what I read, though, that uh, there is uh, an element of Social Security that was, was born out of Europe, correct? Well, the general idea of social insurance comes from Europe and it was promoted in many of the early industrialized states, particularly uh, Germany, and, but also England. And so that general idea was, was European, but like all things, we, we made it into a very American institution. Edward, as as we started to see more pensions coming into into being in the United States, how did that potentially impact Social Security, or was there a link between those two as well? 
fact, there was a, a link um, when they first debated Social Security in 1935 and also a little bit in 1936. People had the idea that if you already had a pension from your employer um, that was as good as the one you would get from Social Security, then your employer would should be able to opt out of Social Security. Um, if that had happened, it would have been a very different diff- different program than the one we have. Um, that that was defeated, though. And I think the, the, one of the key points here is that the development of pensions really doesn't take off until um, the Second World War and afterwards and in the 1950s as well. So in some ways, Social Security preceded uh, many industrial pensions, and they've learned to work together. The, the contrast you could make is with Medicare, where the private sector was way ahead of the public sector um, in terms of the development of health insurance through employers. And that really has affected the, the politics of both programs, I think. Well, Julian, when you think about the, these programs, uh, when you talk about the three of them, not only have they been very important uh, to the country on a variety of fronts, but it, it, to a degree, as Edward was saying, there is a linkage between all three. Absolutely. Uh, I, I think, uh, you know, Ed saying on Social Security, something very important in, in the ways in which the, the public provision preceded a lot of the expansion of the, the private provision, but both in the end are developed hand in hand as policymakers uh, think of the rates of each of those as they set them. Uh, and healthcare is a whole different story, and, and scholars who look at it always talk about the fact that we developed this pretty entrenched private health care system before yeah. we really expand the hand of government, which we do after 1965. But still, the two develop and coexist uh, in a very American way and, and impact each other. Uh, there's no way to talk about Medicare reform, for example, right now without thinking of the consequences on the entire uh, health care industry. Um, and similarly with Medicaid, which is a program that started as being relatively small and inconsequential, but has grown into a major uh, form of health care provision. Um, not only does the rest of uh, the health care world really make its calculations based on Medicaid money, but a lot of state and local governments also do their business anticipating funds coming through. And so uh, these worlds are totally uh, interconnected. Well, the, the key thing, too, is that... Uh, um, in Medicare, the it, it because our system is so fragmented. Medicare is actually the largest single payer uh, of health uh, insurance, and Medicaid has the most people of any plan. So these are these are very large, and therefore, the amount of money that the government decides to pay for hospitals for a particular operation or whatever is very influential. I mean, they're 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 in some ways driving the health care system. Well, what I found interesting in looking back at this is that Medicaid, uh, Julian, was signed uh, obviously on the same day as, as Medicare back in 1965, but it was tied to Social Security. Well, Medicare is, from the start, envisioned as a program that will build on Social Security. So it depends on the Social Security tax for a large right. part of the financing. Politically, it was depending on the fact that people had become accustomed to Social Security and enjoyed the benefits so much uh, that when this health care proposal 
came before Congress and it would inevitably be attacked as socialized medicine, the linkage to Social Security would actually empower the program. Uh, Medicaid is a part of the Social Security Amendments of 1965, which creates Medicare A and B, but it's a, it's a pretty small program. It, it comes out of a complicated legislative history uh, where conservatives basically proposed something like Medicaid as a way to prevent a bigger program from passing. Uh, but in the end, the way it worked out, Congress passed everything uh, in, in a big package of, of programs. So uh, at the time, it wasn't the focus of the debate. Medicare was the focus. This Medicaid program was not something most people were paying attention to, but within 10 years, it started to expand dramatically. Edward? Yes, you know, the... the um Part of the confusion that people have here is that uh, there's a couple of things going on at once. In 1935, the Social Security Act was passed. It's one big piece of legislation. Within that 1935 Social Security Act were, were the beginnings of our modern welfare programs. In other words, programs that are means-tested. You have to prove that you're poor in order to get benefits. The beginnings of our unemployment compensation program as well. Um, so it was a, it, all these programs are part of Social Security. Similarly, in 1965, when we had this major uh, amendment to the Social Security Act, so the Medicare and Medicaid are both part of the Social Security Amendments of 1965. Yeah. So they're part of Social Security, but they're, they're, they're quite distinct uh, programs. You know, and if you go today to, to inquire about Social Security, you can find out in your local office about Medicare in that same office. So there's still this link because Medicare and Social Security were run out of the same bureaucracy for many years. Edward, just to kind of surmise this for a second, in what FDR wanted to try and do in moving this forward many, many years ago and the impact that it has had over the decades, uh, would he view uh, would he view it as a, as a, as a win for the country overall? Well, I haven't talked to him recently. Right, uh, yeah, obviously. I know he's uh, no longer with us, but um, I, I would say yes, and I, I think that he made that point several times, that this was an important piece of legislation on which to build, um, and uh, so he was a, a major advocate of it, and so was his Secretary of Labor, first uh, woman cabinet member, Frances Perkins, all of whom saw this as, as uh, you know, creating a a basis for the American welfare state. Julian, same for you, but but looking at, at President Johnson. Absolutely. Uh, I, I think there there's certainly been problems with Medicare. There's been uh, you know, controversy with Medicaid. But overall, the programs fulfilled a lot of what the ambitions were. Uh, they certainly curbed the problem of elderly Americans not having access to hospital care and to physician care. Uh, overall, they've been very effective, and, and many economists, uh, you know, praise the way the money is actually spent by these programs, and they have become incorporated into American society uh, in, in a way that's kind of remarkable, that even in, in, in red states, there's, there's demand for Medicaid expansion, for example, under ACA, uh, even though it's it's become entwined in, in the politics of that program. And uh, 
I think Johnson would be smiling uh, if, if he looked back and saw what he created. How, how political, I, I mean, obviously, when you look at today, it, it is seen as a political uh, hot button for a lot of people. But in terms of the challenges, the challenges are one thing, whether they're coming from the, the public or, or from uh, Capitol Hill. But how political was this back in you know 1964 and 65 leading up to this? It was fierce. I mean, the politics was... Uh, pretty brutal. This had been one of the great frustrations of, of President Kennedy was his inability to move the Medicare proposal, even though he really pushed for it quite aggressively in a way that he didn't on issues like civil rights, mounted a public relations campaign, was really putting pressure on members of Congress, but he couldn't get it through. The the AMA really put together a counterattack on the program uh, that was as intense as anything President Obama faced with ACA or President Clinton with his health care proposal. It was being called socialized medicine. It was being uh, seen as a extension of of socialist programs here in the U.S. and and the conservative coalition. It was bipartisan. Conservatism was was bipartisan. It wasn't strictly on party lines. Was resolute in not letting that bill move through. So. Uh, it was an incredibly contentious, contentious issue. Barry Goldwater yeah. uh, is is against Medicare, and this is one of the key moments because he puts that as part of his campaign in '64. And when Johnson wins, and the Democrats elected to Congress run on Medicare, Goldwater's defeat is a sign to many Republicans that they better change course on that issue. Uh, and things really turn in 65. But how much of a deciding factor was it in terms of Mr. Goldwater in running for president? Not at all, probably. Um, I think he, Barry Goldwater, the senator from Arizona, sort of had the idea in his mind that he would run against President Kennedy. Right. Um, and they even had plans, I don't know how well developed they were, that they, he had this idea that they would fly from place to place together, and they they were supposedly friends and so on and so forth. So then he ends up running against Lyndon Johnson uh, after the assassination of President Kennedy, which changed everything. Um, and uh, he, he was just a, a conservative. So, so for him, the issue about Medicare uh, was in part that he didn't want the, the uh, government to be able to control the actions of doctors. But in a, in a more modern conservative sense, he, he thought that, well, the better thing to do would be not to start this elaborate program of medical benefits, but just, you know, give people money. In other words, maybe a, a, a rise in their Social Security benefit and let them decide how to spend the money, which has a lot of resonance today in, in our political discussion. Julian? Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, what's, what's interesting to me just looking back is both how contentious the program was at the time how the policymakers saw it both as an incremental solution uh, to the broader health care problem uh, and, and really did work, even if it was contentious, to achieve this, this bipartisan outcome, and how the programs, A, expanded over time, just as Social Security did, uh, incrementally, and, and gradually how they really uh, gained support uh, in both in both parties and just became part of the fabric of of American life. And uh, I think looking back, it's, it's quite remarkable, especially in the moment we're in, to see, see how those programs evolve. 
I, I, obviously, Edward, when you think about going back in, in as far back as we do uh, with Social Security, uh, and obviously there are the concerns now, but if you think about how that has impacted so many millions of people over the decades, uh, it, it has been one of the most important programs uh, to have here in the history of this country. Right. So as uh, people will tell you, it is our most effective anti-poverty program. A lot of people that a lot of elderly people, a lot of people with disabilities that have to depend um, solely on their Social Security benefits. And so that is a really a mainstay of our safety net or of our welfare state. But I wanted to go back maybe just for a second to this question of, of political controversy, if I might. Yes. Um, and, you know, there were t- Medicare was controversial in 1964, and then in 1965 it was pretty clear it was going to pass. Johnson was delighted that... Uh, he could pass a program that Kennedy had failed to pass. And then he sort of slips out of politics for a little while, but becomes contentious um, in the 1980s a little bit, and then at the end of the 1990s. And the reason is that the, the, both of these programs, both Social Security and Medicare, have this trust fund uh, structure, which uh, is sort of a, a measure of how the, of the financial health of the, of the program. Does it have more money than it's spending? And as those margins get close, as, as, as it looks like the program might go into debt, right. controversy arises. Interestingly, also, that in Medicare, the controversy has been about Part A, which is a hospital part of the program, rather than Part B, which is the doctor part of the program, because the Part B trust fund has general revenues that can be put into it, but the Part A trust fund doesn't. And that trust fund politics combined with the rise of the security of the conservative movement yeah. really generates these, these occasional big big controversial moments in in um, b- both medicare and social security i have to end it there thank you both edward julian thank you very much for your input thank you sir for having us. thank you both you're listening to knowledge at wharton on business radio sirius xm 111 here again is dan loney Welcome back. Hour number two of Knowledge at Wharton here on Sirius XM 111, business radio powered by the Wharton School. Thanks for spending part of your day with us. We talked yesterday about the history of entitlement programs like Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, and more. But what about the future for these? Talk within the last few months has many people worried about what Medicaid and Medicare will be in the next few years. They also worry about the future of Social Security. To take a look at what is ahead, we are joined on the phone by Timothy Smeeting, who's a distinguished professor of public affairs and economics at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He's also author of the book of Snap Matters, How Food Stamps Affect Health and Well-Being. Also joining us, Gary Bertless, Senior Fellow and Chair in Economic Studies at the Brookings Institution in Washington, D.C. Gary, great to have you back on the show. Tim, thank you for joining us today. Hello. Thank you. Thank nice you. to be here. This is Tim. Thank you very much. Great to have you both. Uh, so, Tim, what do you think is the state of these types of programs right now? Well, it's pretty clear that our commitments are more than, more than our ability to pay for them. Um some of the entitlements for the poor will get cut, uh, but there's not enough money there to make a difference. The big things are Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid. And the standard public finance answer, which is probably still true, is either you're going to have to raise taxes or you're going to have to lessen outlays. 
Now, there are many ways to do this. And the quite important question is, how are we going to do this? So if, if uh, Lindsey Graham Incorporated or uh, Senator Graham or Paul Ryan um, turned Medicare into a premium support or block-granted Medicaid and other programs to the states, that would probably relieve some pressure at the federal level, but it would push pressure either on the states for Medicaid to cover costs or in individuals to make up for what the premium supports don't pay for in Medicare. Um, there is no way around the fact that either outlays are going to go down or tax revenues are going to have to rise. And the important thing, I think, is that we've waited so long to do something about Social Security and Medicare that our options are much more limited now. Uh, back in the 80s, when we saw problems coming, we said, okay, you told people like me, who is 69 now, when I was 50, that I'd have to work till 67 and not 65. We don't have time now to tell today's 50-year-olds that they're going to have to work till they're 70. That's uh, not going to solve the problem. Uh, the disability program is already borrowed from the from the trust fund of the of the social, regular Social Security system, and we're just facing a big fiscal cliff. There are really serious issues, and we don't have much room to kick the can down the road. So that's where we are. Um, something's got to give. Uh, we're looking for leadership. We're hoping that it's in a way that doesn't affect the poor and the needy as much, but um, we've got ourselves in a fiscal corner now thanks to our recent tax cuts and the automatic budget reduction rules. Gary, what's your reaction? Well, uh, we can kick down the can uh, for about 12 to 15 more years in the case of Social Security. At that time, um, under law, uh, the benefits are going to have to be trimmed by uh, roughly one quarter, I think, right. uh, because the only amount of money that the Social Security uh, system will be able to send out every month is the amount of money that at that time is flowing in as payroll taxes into the system. Uh, at the moment, we're financing benefits both with those uh, tax payments coming in, but in addition with investment income and the built-up reserves of Social Security that have been accumulated over the entire existence of the program, 1936 to the present. Uh, but when those reserves are depleted, as they're expected to be shortly after uh, 2030, uh, then under law, the only benefits that can be paid are those that can be financed with the revenues then flowing in as payroll taxes. So that's how long we have to kick the can down the road in the case of uh, Social Security. What do you think is, uh, I mean, it's we're, we're obviously in an interesting situation where tax is concerned because of, of what the tax bill uh, has, you know, has changed, at least for, in the short term for here in this country. But, uh, Gary, I'd be interested, I mean, when you look at Medicare and Medicaid, this, these are programs, and Social Security as well, these are programs that, that have uh, an unbelievable impact on people every day here in the United States. And to be at a point right now where we're looking at a significant cutback, uh, I know this isn't about the history of these programs, but it does have to make you look back at what was not done as late as you know, 20, 30 years ago that we could have done to, to maybe 
at least eliminate part of the problem. Well, we did eliminate part of the problem in Social Security back in 1983. Uh, that's when uh, Tim faced that increase in when he can claim a full Social Security benefit. Right. Uh, and some changes were made in the cost of living adjustment that slowed down uh, spending increases. Uh, and we boosted tax revenues. We increased the payroll tax that is used to pay for Social Security. Uh, and so we did something. And then perhaps less recognized uh, is the fact that we constantly are jiggering with the terms of Medicare programs. So. Uh, if we had believed the forecast yeah. in the late 1980s, the Medicare program should have run out of money in the 1990s, but as everyone knows, it did not. And that's because through a combination of uh, increases in the taxes that we impose on higher income Americans and uh, through cutbacks in the amount that we pay to doctors and other providers, we have kept pushing into the future that year when Medicare runs out of money. Tim? So, yeah, so we've I, done stuff. I think okay. Gary's right. Go ahead, Tim. I'm sorry. Uh, Gary's right on. Uh, the trouble is, uh, if we're going to do something before, you know, you can think of of um, driving off the cliff in 12 years or doing something responsible now. The issue, of course, is that Social Security and Medicare are the main beneficiaries are elder voters. And um, so we've been very careful about that. Uh, at the end of 2015, I believe, mm -hmm. um, we uh, decided that the Medicare premium increases that the elderly were going to be facing next year in an election year that would be 2016 were going to be too high. So all of a sudden we found $12 billion to make sure that they didn't get hit with a big Medicare increase, certainly bigger than their COLA or cost of living adjustment in Social Security. Um, and But we can't do that. Those are just putting patches on things. We really have to carefully and systematically address things now. And part of it has to be, I think Gary is right, the tax word. In 1983, 90% of wages and salaries were taxed under Social Security. So we set mm -hmm. the ceiling on the tax up to 90%. Now there's something like 82% of all earnings are taxed. So an easy thing to do would be to raise uh, the taxable limit on Social Security from about 120-something where it is now up to 170 or 180-something over a few years. That would help a little bit. It won't do enough, but that's one possible tax solution. Of course, there are lots of tax solutions out there, value-added taxes, there's a carbon tax, there's lots of things we could do to creatively be able to pay these benefits in the future. Uh, the other thing you can do, of course, is to reduce those benefits. Now, Medicare, through its advantage plans and its and competition, and literally using lowering the cost of death through a better application of you know of hospice and so forth, uh, Medicare has managed to slow its rate of increase, but not enough to forget about it. And as we all know, Medicaid is the catch-all for everything. Yeah. And we're it's catching more and more and more <laughs> and more people. Uh, there'll be more uninsured in there. We haven't funded S-CHIP, so some children's health programs are going to go. We cut the best thing that George Bush did, which is to provide 
uh, community health care centers so that people who had Medicaid cards in their pockets living in urban areas could have a place to go to the doctor. And we've cut nurse home visiting. Uh, these programs are already gone. They haven't been put back in. And uh, those are relatively small but important programs. And now um, we're just facing this cliff. Uh, and uh, we need some leadership on what to do about it. If you're going to just pass off the burden in terms of premium supports, which essentially says we're going to give everybody a, the elderly a voucher for Medicare and tell them to go buy it from their friendly local private health insurers, uh, that would be an easy way to lessen the federal debt because all you have to do is know the number of people who are going to be eligible for Medicare and multiply that by the amount of the voucher that you're paying out, and you know exactly what the costs are going to be. Yeah. And you just lower the voucher enough, but then that transfers, obviously, the responsibility for the rest of the costs either to Medicare uh, or to the Medicare beneficiaries themselves or to the low-income beneficiaries where Medicaid pays those costs for Medicare recipients. So there's there's no way around it. Um, uh, P has to go up, taxes have to go up, or expenditures have to go down. And we should do something sooner rather than later. That's my position. And we have to address the big three, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid. There's not enough money in, in food stamps or school lunches or low-income energy assistance, which has been written out, or anything else to deal with this issue. Well, uh, it, I, wor- go ahead. I wonder whether go ahead. I can make an observation here. One, one way to think about our problem is to compare it to the problems faced by other rich countries. Right. Uh, I, Tim is an expert on the international comparisons, but I think he will probably agree with me. The United States does not spend a lot relative to the size of its economy on public pensions, on aid to the poor, right. on the direct uh, housing benefits and so forth. Where we stand out is how much we spend on health. Now, even here, we we spend publicly uh, an above-average amount compared with other rich countries. But on top of what we spend publicly, we spend a great deal more on out-of-pocket uh, costs, such as uh, private insurance payments and our payments to doctors and hospitals above and beyond what's reimbursed by the insurance plan. So it's really the health care system of the United States that looks uh, – Oddly, very, very expensive, very costly relative to the rest of the world. To give us credit, we have slowed down the spending since the late, uh, well, since the end of the last decade. But even so, the Congressional Budget Office projects that excess growth in medical care spending is going to account for a sizable chunk of the future growth in federal government outlays on medical care programs. We are just not very good, uh, not as good as our counterparts in other rich industrialized countries in controlling the costs uh, that uh, drive up uh, the burden on taxpayers of paying for health care. 
844-WHARTON is the number to give us a call, 844-942-7866. Or if you can't catch your phone, you can send us a comment via Twitter, either at BizRadio111, B-I-Z, Radio111, or my Twitter account, which is at Dan Loney, L-O-N-E-Y 21. To the phones we go, Winchester, Virginia. Les is on the line. Les, welcome, sir. Hey, uh, two questions. First of all, did was Social Security Trust Fund ever paid back when they raided it to balance the budget? And then the second question is the investment income that we're talking about. Is it just the gov- government bonds or is it uh, out on the open market, uh, you know, stocks and bonds on the, on the uh, indexes? All right. Social Security Trust Fund was paid back. Uh, I, I think that the instances in which there has been uh, raids, as you call it, on the trust fund have been fairly minor. Uh, they and they didn't last long, and uh, the trust fund was then compensated for the loss of funds uh, by uh, Treasury uh, uh, transmissions of funds to top up the Social Security trust fund. All of the money in the trust funds is uh, held as uh, government debt or other kinds of debt that are 100% backed by the United States Treasury. When that investment plan was adopted back in the 1930s, uh, it was thought that this was the least politically controversial thing you can do because, as you may recall, in the 1930s, uh, private company stocks, private company bonds were not held in very high regard as a store of value. So we have maintained that investment philosophy. Uh, There was debate in the 1990s about changing it, investing part of the Social Security reserves and the Medicare reserves in the stock market. but there was a lot of opposition to that. A lot of voters are very queasy about the idea that uh, their Social Security benefits, their Medicare benefits, might depend on the ups and downs of Wall Street. Tim, anything you'd like to add? Well, I think Gary nailed it. Uh, essentially, general revenues, uh, we've loaned the Social Security trust funds to the federal government, which they've used as general revenues. Uh, and They've given pieces of paper called special government bonds to the trust fund people, now they have to repay those. And so money is flowing back into Social Security from the um, um, federal system. Um, But I agree totally with Gary that it it would be very risky, in my opinion, despite the recent wonderful performance of the stock market, it would be very risky to invest Social Security and Medicare trust funds in in the private sector. I can imagine who's going to manage the funds, what are they going to look like. It could be done maybe with the way that um, federal employee retirement is done, but um, Gary's exactly right. It's pretty scary if you're thinking that when the stock market goes down, not only are you going to get nailed um, for your own private pension holdings or whatever assets you have invested, uh, but your Social Security and Medicare will be at risk too. So we decided not to do that, and I think that's correct. Mm-hmm. 
Thank you for the call, Les. 844-942-7866 is the number if you would like to join in. We were talking with uh, Tim Smeeting of the University of Wisconsin-Madison, who's a professor of public affairs and economics there. And also joining us, Gary Bertless, senior fellow and chair in economic studies at the Brookings Institution. Comment from a a listener on Twitter, uh, a question to to both of you, uh, and more so about uh, retirement and Social Security. Uh, He mentions, uh, require mandatory retirement plan contributions contributions by employees like they are doing in Oregon. Uh, Gary, Tim, who would like to well, take that? Well, you know, this plan, it, it's funny. This is a plan. I have a number of students who are in Asian, come from Asian countries, and they haven't formed the Social Security systems yet, and they want to know what to do. And I talk about the Australian solution, which is essentially the same thing. The Australians in 1993 said every employer will put 9% of every employee's salary into a privately managed retirement fund and so the stock market has grown well they've been very lucky yeah uh, people have done well they have a an income tested program to make sure that if somehow you fell through it you you know there'd be a safety net uh and in singapore they've had provident funds for a long time which were a similar idea so the idea of mandatory iras um, has worked in other countries, and it may be something that we actually want to look at uh, in our country, but that's not going to solve the short-term problem. Is that going to help today's uh, younger people perhaps have a more secure and safe retirement and lead then into the future to maybe redesigning Social Security to just really target it to those who are needy? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that could happen. Uh, but it's not going to solve the short-term problem. It's a long-term solution. And... Um, you know, uh, I think it's a good long-term solution, but right. not a short-term solution. Gary? I think uh, the a huge shortcoming of the United States system compared with Australia is that there is no workplace pension offered for a lot of workers in the private economy. Now, almost everybody in the public sector, government employees, they all have a, a pension system, sometimes underfunded. But... In the private sector, about 45% or so of people are not enrolled in any um, workplace retirement plan. And I do think that at least people should be offered a workplace retirement plan, Uh, one that makes it very simple to withhold funds from your pay, put them in a uh, reasonably safe investment account, uh, and that's what a number of states, including Maryland, uh, Oregon, uh, have uh, decided to do, uh, because this this is a fairly sizable hole for a lot of people. They don't automatically save on their own, right? But workplace savings plans make it much easier for people to set aside money that they never see. It never right. shows up in their weekly paycheck, but it does result in rising balances over the course of their life so that when they retire, they have some kind of a nest egg in addition to Social Security. I think Social Security combined with that kind of employer workplace-based system, it would be a very good combination for the United States and make our system uh, at least as good as Australia's, if not better. I, I would not disagree with that. So yeah. in in order to get something like that, Tim, I mean, seemingly there, there are a whole bunch of challenges when you're talking about something like that. I mean, obviously, the state levels, uh, it, it's it's one way to be able to do that. 
I don't even know if if you could consider something like that at the federal level. This almost feels like it would have to continue to be a state-driven idea. Well, for state employees, it's a state-driven well, idea. Well, right, exactly, yeah. But um, for And in the private sector, we encourage employers to offer them. We don't order them to offer them. That's the problem. We don't make it mandatory. And as Gary was hinting, when we tell people that when they sign up, a young person signs up for a job and they're enrolled and the company has an IRA or a, some sort of a retirement system, um, what's very popular now and it works very well is that you have to opt out of yes. that system. And most people just get used to the smaller spending, the assets grow. If they leave them alone, of course, early withdrawals took place, especially during the Great Recession, to help pay other bills. But if you leave them alone, then you're exactly where Gary uh, says we are and where we want to be, but not all employers offer them. That's the problem. Why? Why is it that the employers do not offer them at this point? Do you think um, some? Uh, you know, well, there's the growth of the gig economy and all that, and more self-employment. That's sure. part of it. But um, employers of low-wage employees just don't, you know, they want to don't want to bother with it, don't want to stay with it. Um, you know, they, they're not going to hold on to their employees very long. They don't want a lot of loyalty. And, you know, when we, when we do do this, and the nice thing about a defined contribution plan, which is what we're talking about, is that it goes to someone like Vanguard or T.I. Kraft or somebody, and it's very portable, so it moves when the employee moves right. to another business. But the low-wage labor market, uh, you're just not seeing it. It's just not something that's offered. Uh, I think that I think that the answer to your question, though, is that it's a, a peculiar mix of people in the financial services industry oppose this kind of a mandate, and ideological conservatives. Although I find the ideological conservatives' opposition to the Oregon-style plans to be very baffling. First of all, there's no obligation that individual workers sign up. They can opt out if they want, as Tim says. Uh, it's just that the default option when you start working for a company, private company, is that that company will have a retirement plan for you, and it will withhold money and deposit it in the state-organized investment funds. Uh, why is this considered um, a, a problem for ideological conservatives? I have no idea. And if there are people in your audience who can fill me in, I'd love to hear it. But I think it's very clear why the financial services industry doesn't like this. Why? Because Oregon or Maryland or California can organize these saving systems in a way that they have very, very low costs. Right. And that might be regarded as a threat to the current financial management industry because it's collecting healthy fees, big fees, yeah. from employers yep. to run their retirement plans for them. That is the most special of special interests relative to the broad public interest in having people have resources in retirement in addition to what Social Security provides. As Tim also can uh, uh Confirm the United States Social Security system is not very generous by world standards. In rich countries, it's typical that the great majority of workers receive benefits under their public system that replaces a larger proportion of their lifetime earnings than is the case here in the United States. So in the United States, it's more necessary 
that we have workplace voluntary or or mandatory uh, private contribution schemes to top up what Social Security provides for middle-income and upper-middle-income families. Well, Tim, we're running towards the end, but playing off of what Gary just said, give us some examples so that people can understand the differences between what retirees get through Social Security here and what people in, uh, in other countries may get. Well, in other countries, they have two tiers like we do, but their lower tier is set at a level you know, far in excess of the poverty line, maybe 150% of the poverty line. So um, in our system, it depends more on what you pay in versus what you get out still. And there are people who either contribute for short periods of their life or whose husbands pass away or who take benefits early and so forth who fall through the net and don't receive enough Social Security to keep themselves out of poverty, even the way we define it, which is, you know, very stingy. We're very stingy. Other countries have a flat lower tier and then a smaller earnings-related tier, a smaller tier for upper-income people. But the floor is there, and the floor would be something like $20,000 a year per person now and maybe $30,000 a couple. That's what the floor would look like in, um, in the other countries. And over and above that, you can build your own private savings and so forth. Right. It's very similar to the way they deal with health care. It's not that private insurance doesn't exist in other countries, but there's a platform, a public sector health care system, which gives people all of the essentials at a very, very low cost. And then if you want, you know, a private room or if you want access to particular specialists or whatever, you can buy a small amount of private insurance over and above the public sector. So the idea is there are floors. There's a floor in health care. There's a floor in retirement. And we just don't have them in our system. So uh, those at the bottom end suffer more because they have higher costs. And some of them get paid by Medicaid and health care. Um, our supplemental security income program really doesn't help low-income elderly. That's the program designed at elderly whose Social Security is too little because it says that you can't have more than $2,000 in the bank to qualify. And because benefits for the SSI program are also low. So... We don't have an effective floor. Um, there have been many proposed. I proposed one. Others have two that would be fairly low cost, but um, I couldn't agree more with Gary. We are where we are, and this is – and a redesign would really help. Great having you both with us. I have to end it there. Tim, Gary, thank you very much. A great conversation, and thank you for your insight. Thank, thank you. you. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.